Acts 24, we're going to finish up the chapter today, beginning in verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you know I'm something of a 60s music buff. One of the ones I really like is, did you ever have to make up your mind? I think it's the love and spoonful. Grace might remember better than I do. Um, The whole song is about making up your mind between, you know, multiple girls kind of thing. And I find in my life, I've decided on a girl. I did that pretty early. Uh, But... George and I have a perpetual problem, anyway, in, in a similar vein, because we can never decide how to spend the night out. Uh, not that we go out, really, all that often. Uh, earlier this week, Jed and Lauren were, were kind enough to take us to Music Fest on Monday night, and that was a, a great time, very cool. Uh, but our usual method is quite different from that. Uh, our usual method is to debate 12 different possible places we could go to eat while driving in circles. And... We've never made reservations because we don't know where we're going until we get there. And half of the excitement of a date night for us is like the adventure of it all because almost anything could happen, right? Uh, The last time we went out without somebody else to direct us, uh, we seriously, we, we spent nearly two hours milling around in circles between Allentown and Whitehall before deciding on a place to actually eat. And I don't think that's our record either. Um, We are a very indecisive couple. We still haven't decided what to do for our anniversary, and that was two months ago. So (laughs) commitment is hard for us. I hate when everything is in limbo like that, but at the same time, making an actual decision scares me more. And I think this is true of society across the board. Uh, I think perhaps the saddest thing about our society in a lot of ways is our lack of commitment to anything uh, other than maybe sports teams, right? And you see it in all kinds of arenas. Like, you know, when you decide to go to college, right? And and colleges offer more and more majors and minors just so you can keep changing your major as you go, right? And if you you play your cards right, you can change majors every semester and you can avoid graduating altogether. I know people that have done this for years. And, And it's seen in the curse of having thousands of TV channels or satellite radio. I got the advertisements for that with the van. You know, it's just like there's... There was no channel surfing when all you had was 3, 6, and 10, right? Like, that didn't happen. We surf the Internet for much the same reason, right? The options are endless, and indecision is kind of addictive. Uh, But we are especially allergic, as a culture, to commitment in relationships. Now, we had a wedding here yesterday, but I would say that that's becoming an exception, right? Uh, 
I think as a society, we are allergic to relationship commitment, and we, we kind of like it that way. If you, if you see, the fact is that the divorce is easier than ever. Uh, the average age for marriage keeps creeping higher. The birth rate continues falling because children definitely require commitment. Uh, people change jobs faster than any time in history. And even within the church, uh, we're not terribly committed to our churches. People tend to play musical chairs when it comes to church, bouncing from church to church. We've all seen that. And I guess what I'm saying is we don't like sitting still. We're very easily bored. Commitment is hard for us. And one of the most depressing signs I, I, I find is when you look at people's Facebook profiles. First of all, you have like dozens of genders to choose from now, right? Because you don't need to commit there either. You can change that every week if you want. But under relationship status, I think the saddest thing that you'll often see is it's complicated, right? That literally doesn't mean anything. It clarifies absolutely nothing about your status, right? That's why that's not an option. Like if you go, when you answer the census records, that's not an option of it's complicated. You're either married or you're not married, right? Or you're widowed, whatever it is, but you're one or the other. So don't get me wrong, life, life is complicated, I know that. But we tend to make it more so than it has to be, I think. And that is one thing. That Facebook relationship status is particularly depressing, I think. And not just because of that Meryl Streep, Alec Baldwin movie. I didn't actually see that. But, but I, I feel like it's emblematic of what's wrong with so many of us in this country. I think we are allergic to commitment. We are comfortable with ambiguity. And we are addicted to indecision. I think it can truly be said of most of us, with many things in life, that it's complicated. And sadly, this is no less true in how people address their relationship with God. People seem to prefer a little wiggle room when it comes to religion, even in the Christian faith. You know, if we really have to believe all that the Bible teaches, we get anxiety attacks. So people tend to adopt an ambiguous or what they'll call a nuanced perspective and approach to theology because it makes it easier. It's easier to be non-committal about things because, after all, how could anybody know anything for sure and with such certainty? And there's nothing new under the sun because today we get a closer look at Felix, Mr. Happy, right? He is our Roman governor extraordinaire of Judea, savior of the republic or a menace to society, depending on which lawyer you're talking to. Uh, but Felix is not just an important political figure in history. He is also the recipient of the longest, most sustained, most consistent, most targeted evangelistic effort ever by the Apostle Paul. And in the end, he remains uncommitted, ambiguous, and undecided. If Felix had a Facebook account and he had to label his relationship status with Jesus Christ, it would be that it's complicated. So the story has a sad ending in a way. In, in a way, the, the, the heading of this section in your Bible kind of says it all. Paul kept in custody, it says, right? That's the headline. But it's not the whole story. We're going to look a little closer at it, and then we can kind of parse out what it actually means for us. You have to remember that Paul, uh, as we had seen last week, he had just finished giving his defense. He had been accused of rioting by the Jewish elders through their attorney, Tertullus, and Paul gave a very gracious defense. He was respectful, he told the truth, and he focused on the hope of the resurrection. And he had just wrapped up his speech, and then we kind of hit the pause button, kind of like turning off the TV before Judge Judy can give a verdict. And today we pick up now with Felix's response, or half-response. <laughs> Looking at verse 22 again, but Felix... 
having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. This is a very noncommittal response. Sort of a trend for him, isn't it? It's hard to even make sense of, because if Paul is a rioter, then he definitely deserves death. He's a danger to society. But Felix clearly doesn't actually believe that. I think he knows a blowhard when he sees one, because it takes one to know one after all. So he looks at Tertullus, and he knows he's dealing with a sleazeball lawyer here. Tertullus spent all that time praising Felix as a great reformer, and Felix is like, yeah, okay, buddy, what do you really want? It's not that Felix doesn't appreciate flattery, but it's hard to take these guys seriously. It's kind of like if my wife comes to me and she, she bats her eyes and compliments me on my muscles, I know she needs me to either move some ridiculous weight in her sewing room or open a jar or she needs to spend money or something like that. There's something, there's a catch, right? We all like to be flattered, but we don't typically actually believe it. So I, I think Felix knows Paul is not a rioter. He's not the type. He's far too respectful and calm, Paul. As Gabe Kapler might have said, he doesn't profile well as a rioter. But if Paul's not a rioter, then he should be released, right? In fairness. Uh, but that doesn't happen either. Felix apparently believes that Paul should remain in prison. He's heard a lot about this thing called the way. So he's aware of this Christian movement in the province. He's not a total ignoramus. He knows some of what's going on. What Felix can't figure out is why these guys hate Paul so much, specifically. Not that it has any bearing on the facts of the case, but they've never dragged James in here. They've never pulled Peter in here. Philip lives right here in Caesarea. None of the other Christ followers, they don't drag any of them. What did this guy do to piss everybody off? So this is no longer about the merits of the case. It's about keeping order in Jerusalem, right? So, so Felix gives a non-answer, and he tells everyone, look, take a several-day recess so he can have Lysias, the head of the garrison at Jerusalem, the top cop, right? He's going to come down. He's going to explain it further, which says to me, Felix doesn't know what to think. But he's tired of listening to these Jews argue about stuff he doesn't care about, so he wants a sensible Roman to come and explain it. Wait till he gets here. Then I'll make a decision. So Felix is an indecisive man, and again, I can relate But he's not completely callous toward Paul either, is he? Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he, Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So it sounds like Paul is no longer being entertained as a guest as he had been, right? The the orders have slightly changed. Just to be on the safe side, in case Paul is actually some sort of master criminal, we're going to lock him up this time, but only kind of. Keep him in a cell at night, give him a curfew, uh, but let him walk the grounds during the day, and he can entertain visitors whenever he wants as long as they leave by 10 o'clock. It sounds a little like Seaside Home, doesn't it? (laughs) So this is not really fair to Paul, but it's not cruel either. Felix, considering he's something of a megalomaniac, he's being pretty decent here to Paul overall, and I think it's because he legitimately doesn't know what to do with him. It's not that blind justice is Felix's strong suit, but this is no longer a judicial matter in his minds. For Felix, this is not just about whether Paul is a dangerous man. He's clearly not. And it's not about the Jews either. Felix is no friend to the Jews, really. He can take them or leave them, and I don't think he trusts them. But for Felix, the unanswered question is Paul himself, and I don't think he's decided how he feels personally about him. doesn't hate him, but he can't decide if he really likes him either. 
So, at least from the start here, for Felix, justice is somewhat arbitrary. He has a perfect excuse to kill Paul based on the accusations of multiple witnesses. He could also release Paul easily enough, but something about Paul stops him. He wants more time with Paul. I think something about Paul, something in Paul's presence, something in his speech, something in his demeanor, something has grabbed Felix's attention. And I think he wants to figure Paul out. Because he's heard about this Jesus stuff, right? But he's never met somebody who actually believed it or spoke about it so passionately. So he decides he's going to keep Paul as a pet for a little while. We're going to keep him kenneled at night, but always at my beck and call. And that's the way things stay for a few days until Felix decides he's going to amuse his wife and get her take on the situation. Verse 24. After some days... Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, that's an idea for a date night right there, babe. See? Should have thought of that years ago. No, so this is is interesting. Felix has a Jewish wife, so he married a local gal. And that sounds real sweet and everything, right? Until you hear the details of it. This This is not Felix's first wife, nor is it his last He had been married to an aristocratic woman before who was also named Drusilla. I guess he had something of a fetish with that name. I don't know. But later he seduced this woman, his second wife. She was married at the time to the king of Emesa. That was like like a client kingdom up in the Syria area. So she divorced her first husband so that she could be with Felix. And it's also worth noting that this Drusilla is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. This would be the guy who got eaten by worms back in chapter 12, if you'll recall, which means her dad killed the apostle James and imprisoned Peter, and her great-uncle had beheaded John the Baptist, and her great-great-grandfather had slaughtered the innocents in Bethlehem in an effort to kill Jesus as a small child. So that's a pretty colorful family background. And apparently the soap opera marriages ran pretty deep in this family because you may remember that her great uncle, who arrested John the Baptist, did so originally because he had done a wife swap with his brother and John had criticized him publicly. So Drusilla has an interesting background, to say the least. I'm assuming she's attractive, but also a bit conniving. She's pretty enough to be worth seducing in Felix's mind, but calculating enough that she only marries up because she's leaving the sort of client king of Emesa and marrying a real Roman governor who might be going places. So this is not a model couple, is all I'm trying to say here. But in fairness, these people clearly need the gospel. And again, I suspect that Felix is legitimately interested in Paul and in his message. He's intrigued enough to invite Paul to speak in front of his wife. In other words, this is not an official hearing, right? He's not sitting as a judge in this instance. He's sitting as a curious listener. He's a seeker, if you will. Not like the Harry Potter-like Quidditch match seeker, right? Like like as in seeker-sensitive churches, right? I think Felix suspects that there's something in Paul's message. He's heard of the way, and his advisors may have even explained it to him, but no one has ever presented it to him personally. He's never actually been evangelized. It's the difference between reading a Wikipedia article about Christianity and attending a Billy Graham crusade. Not the same thing. And I think he's interested, and his curiosity is growing. You don't invite your wife to listen if you think Paul is a madman. And you don't call Paul in during date night if you think his message is boring, either. 
Felix is intrigued, and I think he thinks his wife might be too. So he brings Paul in to hear his whole spiel, and then things get a little too real for Felix, and maybe for his wife too. Verse 25, And as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, I, I more than a little suspect that Felix was more afraid of his wife than Paul here. Because here's Paul talking about faith in Christ. But then he starts getting into what it means, ultimately, to follow Jesus. And he doesn't mention names or anything. He just mentions that righteousness and self-control are Christian virtues These are part of the outgrowth of the gospel. Faith in Jesus will lead to more of that. Oh, and also there's a coming judgment. So you'll need Jesus and his righteousness to save you from your sins. And this is getting a little too close for comfort, a little too close to home. Drusilla is a Herodian, and Herodians have this long and storied history of killing prophets for making similar speeches. They don't like hearing about how they are sinners. And Felix having seduced this lady out of her first marriage, doesn't want her to hear this, either because he's afraid that she'll get angry and demand that Paul be executed, much like her great uncle did, or he's afraid she'll start listening and have regrets about this relationship. Maybe both, but either way, he decides we need to end this discussion and end it now. But he's still intrigued. He doesn't send him away forever, just for a bit. Paul's gospel was demanding a decision, and Felix wasn't ready to make one. So, just like at the hearing, Felix says, let's wait a few days. And according to Luke, Felix started to evolve in his thinking. Verse 26 says, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So, interest and curiosity becomes blended with greed. And I don't think money alone is why Felix kept talking to Paul, but he's no longer engaged with the same seriousness, maybe. It's not that he dislikes Paul or finds him uninteresting. He's just waiting for a bribe, and then I would happily release him, but he doesn't have any beef with Paul. But the, the old Felix, the corrupt politician in Felix, is kind of winning out at this point, right? He, he's polite, he's friendly, he treats Paul very well, and he's still listening to Paul, but he, he's not going to make a commitment, So how long can that last? Well, verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. First off, holy mackerel, that's a long time to be sitting in limbo. And I mean that in Paul's case, certainly, right? It's certainly true for him. Two years is a long wait for a judge to finally get around to deciding your case. This is longer than he spent in most cities during his missionary journeys. I think like only like Corinth and Ephesus were places where he was for longer, right? And it's also a long time to evangelize one man. Paul's not preaching in the streets here. He's not pastoring a local congregation. His only ministry for two years was Felix and his household. He spent two years as the unofficial chaplain for an unbelieving family. That's a tough, frustrating gig, if you ask me. And sadly, Paul's patience was outmatched by Felix's and Felix's ability to delay. Paul was in judicial limbo, yes, but Felix was in spiritual limbo. 
Felix withstood two years of sermons from one of the most powerful preachers and apologists in church history and was still on the fence at the end. He returned to Rome still undecided. Come back tomorrow, Paul. Come back tomorrow, my friend. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. You could summarize Felix's relationship with Jesus once again as it's complicated. And after two years, I think we can say that Felix liked it that way. It's a lot easier than commitment. Why is Felix unmoved by the gospel? We know it's not the message itself. The gospel is the greatest and only hope of every man. But that wasn't enough for him. I don't think it was the messenger either. Paul is an eloquent defender of the faith. We've seen it again and again. And also, he has a pastor's heart. I imagine he spent much time praying with and for the family. See, Felix and Drusilla had a son, a little boy, named Antonius, Anthony. And it's believed they also had a daughter named Clementiana, Clementine. And I can just picture Paul telling Anthony and Clementine Bible stories for bedtime And I think to myself, like, they had a great pastor and messenger here in the house. But that wasn't enough. And it wasn't ignorance that left Felix unmoved, because you remember, even before any of this happened, Luke says he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He understood intellectually the claims of the gospel. But that wasn't enough. And it certainly wasn't a lack of an invitation. He had two years of relentless evangelism. But it wasn't enough. And in verse 27, Felix checks out of the story, never to be heard from again, and never having committed. Two years later, and Felix is still thinking it over. Two years, and he still hasn't answered the one question that matters. And so far as we know, he was still debating it all the way to the grave and then to hell. It's complicated until it's not anymore. Now, on one level, the question I walked away from in this passage was, you know, was Paul's effort a waste? (laughs) As a believer, I couldn't help but wonder, you know, well, he finally got to talk to kings like God promised, but to no avail... Two years of ministry, lost. I don't think Paul saw it that way. Paul shows no eagerness to escape. He shows no impatience with Felix. He seems to view this as a great opportunity. He just goes up there every day again and again and tells these people about Jesus again and again and again, and he does it until he's blue in the face. And I think, if I know Paul, I think he was probably sad to see them go, still unmoved by the gospel. Paul's state of mind is an interesting question, but I don't think that's the main point of this passage. I don't think this story is in here primarily to tell us about Paul and what he was doing. I think it's a warning. How complicated is your relationship with Jesus? And how on the fence are you about the gospel? How many years have you been entertaining the idea of the gospel, but without committing? Now, some of you hear me say all that, and you think, like, all right, why is Matt comparing us to the unbeliever in this story, right? I'm glad you asked. 
I'm going to share some interesting statistics with you. Uh, it was an article that came out on Monday on the Gospel Coalition's website. Joe Carter was reporting. This is not the guy who broke my heart for the Toronto Blue Jays in 1993, but um, another Joe Carter. The headline of the article is Survey. Majority of American Christians don't believe the gospel. The study was conducted by Arizona Christian University. I'm going to give you just some of the numbers in a nutshell. 48% of Americans believe they can earn their way to heaven by good works. That's bad, but wait till you hear more of it. 52% of self-described Christians say the same regardless of denomination, meaning self-professed Christians are more likely to believe in a works gospel than Americans in general. The majority of all Christians believe in salvation by works, including 70% of Catholics, 46% of Pentecostals, 44% of all Protestants, and 41% of all self-described evangelicals. 65% of Americans describe themselves as Christians, but only 54% believe they'll go to heaven when they die. Yet somehow, for all that, only a whopping 2% of Americans think they're going to hell. Well, they can't all be right. These are scary numbers. And what's scariest is that I have a hard time believing that Somebody in this room is not in that camp somewhere. Because statistically speaking, apparently about 40% of you don't really believe in the gospel of grace. Even if I was doing a really good job of teaching the gospel, even if I communicated it perfectly, the odds are that some people in this room have never fully embraced it. Some of you probably have at best a complicated relationship with Jesus. Now, You may not be that worried about your complicated relationship with Christ. Felix certainly wasn't. He was briefly scared when Paul started getting too close to home with some things, but I'm going to bet that overall he felt like he was in pretty good shape. He liked it complicated. Floating out there, free and breezy. And maybe you think the same. Maybe you think, well, I go to church. I'm here every week. I listen to sermons sometimes. I I like thinking about spiritual things. And yeah, but... Felix heard two years of sermons and did lots of thinking about spiritual things. Or maybe you think, well, I'm not perfect, but I do some good things, especially for the church. I'm always helping clean up. I bring something to the potluck every time. Uh, I tithe regularly, or at least sometimes. Well, Felix did some good things, too. He treated Paul really well. He gave him some freedom. He was a gracious host. He was essentially Paul's sponsor for two years living under his protection. Maybe you think, I know a lot of theology, and I understand the gospel pretty well. Don't lecture me. It's like, yeah, but Felix also understood it intellectually, didn't he? You know, there's a reason when we interview new members, and Simeon can can, uh, attest to this, it's not enough for you to just describe the gospel. We also want to hear that you've experienced it. Lots of people can repeat the mantra that Jesus died for our sins, yet that information can mean absolutely nothing to you personally. And don't think 
that I'm picking on you all for no reason. I just think that this study confirms that most self-proclaimed Christians are essentially heretics. They don't believe or understand the gospel. Felix probably understood more than they do, and he was still unmoved. So do you see why I worry about you all? Y'all mostly look like Christians. Here you are, church on a Sunday morning, but I'm willing to bet some people in this room are not. And it seems highly doubtful to me that our small group right here is pure and flawless. They're talking about other churches. Not to mention that even those of us who reject the idea of salvation by work, some of us who really do believe the gospel, we still live as though we don't sometimes. We proclaim with our mouths that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. We say that only Jesus can save us. But secretly, in our heart of hearts, we actually think we bring something to the table. That me and Jesus can do this thing together. So I ask, if so many self-professed Christians don't understand the gospel, why are they hanging around with Jesus at all? Why even come? And I submit that maybe it's for the same reason that Felix played around with Paul for so long. You don't want to deal with your sin, and you're waiting to see what you can get out of it. If you want a tutorial on how you can spend your whole life in church while tuning out the gospel, follow Felix's example. Refuse to deal with your sin and keep asking what's in it for you. That's how you sustain a complicated relationship with Jesus. Cling to your sin more than Christ and focus on what you can get out of him. Those are Felix's twin hang-ups, fear of dealing with sin and desire for gain. He wanted blessings without change. But the gospel doesn't work that way. Felix couldn't make up his mind largely because he didn't want to deal with his sin, he didn't, and he wanted to see what was in it for him. He wanted to keep sex, and he wanted money. But people have lots of reasons for toying around with the gospel without changing. Politicians often see the church as a source of votes. Some people see it as a source of power. Some see it as a, a place to find friends or a spouse. Some see it as a place to find stability or spiritual and emotional wellness. And not all of those things are bad. You can find a lot of those things here. You can have many years of fruitful relationships in the church, good memories, fun times, great friendships. But at the end, if you're still on the fence about Jesus, you've gained nothing. And spoiler alert, you can't actually have a, a complicated relationship with Jesus. You're either a sheep or a goat. No pressure or anything. But maybe it's time to commit. To uncomplicate the relationship before he does it for you in eternity. I'm not pointing fingers or accusing anyone by name. Because I think these are good reminders for all of us. Because sometimes even believers go through seasons of feeling like this and acting like this. I only observe that we... As Americans, in the 21st century, have gotten very good at living in ambiguity and uncertainty. And some people have lived for years, surrounded by gospel preaching, and remained deaf to its call. And that is heartbreaking. So don't be a Felix. The lesson of Felix is that you cannot be saved by the number of sermons you've heard, 
You will not be saved by your friendship with Christians. You cannot be saved by your kindness and generosity to the church. Even your knowledge of the gospel is not enough. If you are unwilling to bend the knee to Jesus, if you don't know him, if you don't repent of your sins and plead for mercy at the cross of Calvary, if you are not ready to uncomplicate your relationship with Jesus, then you will die outside his grace. Now, Felix had the power to leave Paul in prison, so he did. But he's the one who remained in spiritual bondage at the end of the story. Don't make that mistake. You don't have to have a complicated, ambiguous relationship with Jesus. He already knows what a mess you are. So don't get nervous like Felix when he gets a little close. Stop covering up. Lay your sins at his feet. Humble yourself. And he will lift you up. My prayer is that the Spirit will empower you to do that today and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are a complicated people. Insofar as we can have a complicated relationship with you, the complications on our end, not yours. Lord, we're a mess and we kind of like living like that. We like being on the fence. We like thinking we're above it all, above the fray. We don't like having to confront big decisions. But Lord, we are ultimately hopeless and helpless apart from you. We've got nothing. And Lord, we can pretend that we we have something to offer. Lord, we can keep kicking the can down the road, banking on having just enough good works banked up. Lord, Felix did it, and so so many others, Lord. Self-described Christians, people we fellowship with. Lord, even those of us who believe. Lord, forgive us. Help us, Lord. Lead us into true repentance and help us to become true disciples, Lord. May your spirit be at work, Lord, bringing about the revival that we cannot. Help your church, Lord. Help this country. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.